I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Philippians. We're continuing our series called Becoming. Asking the question of God, who am I? Who am I becoming? God, who are you? What are you doing? We're going virtually verse by verse through this book. Last week we finished in the middle of chapter 2. Chapter 2 finishes by Paul encouraging a couple of people and and pressing them to continue their calling. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to wrap up this letter. Um, He kind of talks like a preacher because in your translations, maybe the first word you see there in chapter 3 is he begins with the word finally. And then Paul goes on to write two more chapters, right? Like when a preacher says, all right, finally, my last point, and then he goes on another 25, 30 minutes. Uh, I'm hoping not to do that with you all today. Uh, But Paul begins to kind of put the theme together in the book of Philippians here. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 3. And what we've been saying throughout this whole series was, wouldn't it be great to have a confident answer in knowing who you are, who you're becoming, and God, who are you and what are you doing? And we've been learning that God is always working. He works all the time. God doesn't take a break. God doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't punch off of the clock. In chapter 1, verse 6, we saw that Paul writes that, being confident in this, right, that God who began the good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of redemption, until the day of the Lord's coming, tells us that God is always working on you, that when you're in Christ, you're constantly under construction. We also saw that God works in our struggles, and Paul, because he's sitting in a jail as he writes this letter, he's chained to a Roman guard, he says this, he says, everything that's happened to me has been used to advance the gospel. And he's really saying, hey, in in our struggles, if you look at them in the light of of temporary situations, they're hard, they're difficult, they're challenging. But when you look at them through what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you, right? Because it's not so much what happens to you, it's more what happens through you. God is at work in our struggles. And that's just a very hopeful, hopeful word. That should give us hope that when we're struggling, God is working God is sorting some things. God is growing you. He's maturing you. He's using your struggle, your situation, to bring you closer to Him. We also know that God is at work in our attitude, our thinking. And Paul brings this upside-down thinking to say, hey, don't do anything selfishly, right? But consider others. Consider others. That means think about them, see them, hear them, know them. He's teaching us that God works in our attitude. And last week we saw that God works in our obedience, where we learned about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, trusting God that it's not our strength that we have to obey God. As people, we don't deal well with obedience. We need God's power in us to obey Him. And all of this here really reminded me of something that I saw this week, which I thought was really, really cool. It was captured by the news. Um, I don't know if maybe some of you saw it. it. It was posted all over the place, but it gave me a picture of what Paul was saying in this letter, and I think it gives us a very clear picture of how God works in us. Um, This week, you know, it got like into the 40s, and Chicago is one of those places when it gets 40, we think it's like summer, right? I mean, like you see people in sandals and shorts. I mean, I have relatives in Texas, some may be watching a few weeks ago, it was like in the 30s, and, 20, and people were like freaking out. Like they woke up, they went out, and they saw frost on their car, like on the windshield. And they were like, yeah, I'm not going to work. Like, I'm going to go in, right? Like, yeah, we, we laugh at that here in Chicago. When they hit 40, it was like, woo! 
summer. I mean, we were out there, right? Crocs and shorts, and it's insane. Well, in Lake Michigan, this thing happened. I want you to see this video, and I want you to see what happens here. And then I want to show you about what I felt like God was saying through this. So watch this short video. For those maybe listening later on, we've just seen a whole sh- like sheet of ice break apart on Lake Michigan. And now we're seeing the ice that's left. Look at that. Slowly be broken apart into little pieces. And totally drifting apart. That was pretty amazing. How many of you had seen that during the week? No one had seen that. When I saw this, I started to think, God, what are you saying through this picture? This is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, you know, when you first come to Christ, that's the big move. That's the move. It's, it's so like earth shattering. It's so apparent. And as you saw in the video, that whole big sheet of ice, right? I mean, that, think about the geography there. That is not a small piece of ice. I mean, that is probably, you know, what we saw there in the video. Who knows how much more outside of the frame, but easily like at least a mile long there, this big, huge sheet of ice breaks off and drifts away. And when we come to Christ, we have this like earth-shattering moment where he jostles us and we feel like, man, this was so huge. This was this big step. And Lord, you just completely taken over my life. And for some people, that's where they think the work is done. But there's that whole other sheet of ice that remained. You saw it, right? And what Paul is writing here is that when God works on you, he does the big work. Coming to him is that big earth-shattering, mind-blowing move of coming to know Christ. But then he wants to work on the ice that's left. And what he takes with that ice, that's our attitudes, that's our obedience, that's our addictions, that's our troubled past, that's our wrong ways of thinking. Like, that's all the other junk that remains. I mean, the big step of us getting made right with Christ, that's that big move. But then in that second move, God does what? He shatters all this remaining junk in our life. And piece by piece, he begins to what? Move it away. Move it away. Move it away. Make it alive. Make it active. You know, it's no longer hardened. It's no longer ice. It's no longer something that covers you. But he brings you back to the way he creates you. This is how God moves. This is who we're becoming. This image is how God works in your life. There's that one big move. But then there's all these little moves that are just as powerful, just as meaningful. And one of those big, you know, Little pieces, because those little pieces were pretty big when you think of them. Geogra- you know, geographically speaking, those were not small pieces of ice. And one of the ones that God works on us is the way we think. And today I want to talk to you about how God works in our thinking. That God wants to take that, that, that mind that you have and, and break it and take the hardness off of it and the way you see Him and what He's done in your life and He wants to do something through you. And Paul here in this part, he, he's beginning to, to get into this, gem, this theme of joy. But he says it has to do with the way you think. And, and it's interesting because your thinking affects everything, doesn't it? The way you interact with people, the way you see the world, your worldview is another way we talk about thinking. And I've heard people say, you know, sow a thought. Have you ever heard this progression? Sow a thought, you reap an action. You reap an action. You'll gain a habit. You sow some habits. You'll gain a lifestyle. And if you gain a lifestyle, you'll reap a destiny. 
You see the progression here. But all of this starts with what? With a thought. It all begins with your thinking. And here Paul is addressing the church in Philippi's thinking. Because he, this was a church that wasn't experiencing the joy of Christ. Why weren't they experiencing the joy of Christ? They had wrong thinking. What was the wrong thinking that they had? They saw that what they had with Jesus was religion, not relationship. And if there's one thing that will keep your joy locked up and keep you from experiencing the true joy of Christ in your life is when you think of what you have with Him as your religion rather than a relationship. And this thought here that what we have with Christ's religion was a sheet of ice that was stopping joy from coming to the church of Philippi. And what Paul was doing here and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to smash that thinking, break it up, get it out of the way so you could experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is known as joy, that comes to you through relationship with Jesus. It doesn't come through religion. It comes through relationship. It's amazing that if you are in Christ and you have no joy in your life, something is broken. We have to aware that. The big idea here is that God is always working. He works in our lives because we have not religion with Him, but because you have relationship with Him. So I want to share with you just a few ideas of what religion says or how religion thinks and how relationship thinks. And it's really just summarizing what Paul is talking through here in these, these 11 uh, verses of chapter 3 because something was happening in the church where people were making it about religion instead of relationship. And because they made it about religion, what was the outcome? No joy. No experiencing the deep, intimate connection of knowing Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about what knowing Jesus means when we get there. So here's the first idea that I want to share with you of this shattering of this thinking of religion rather than relationship. And it says this, religion says that my joy depends on how my life is doing. Relationship, relationship says my joy depends on what Jesus has done. Religion says your happiness depends on how you're performing how are things in your life going? If things are bad, then you shouldn't have joy. You're not doing something right. That's religion. Relationship says, look, no matter what happens in my life, Jesus has done it already. It's not about how I'm doing. It's about what He's done. Listen to the words of Paul in verse 1. He says, whatever happens, your translation might say finally, because he's summarizing the theme here. But Paul says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in what? The Lord I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. He says, finally, this is the theme that he's talking about joy here, and he's using the term, dear brothers and sisters. Again, you hear the, the, the closeness of Paul, the love that Paul has for his church, right? He doesn't say, hey, you guys are over there if you hear me in the back. No, he says, hey, you're my dear brothers and sisters. You're my partners in this. And I love you. And he tells them what? To rejoice. Now, rejoice is different than joy. Joy is a noun. It's a thing that you have or it's a thing that you don't have. Rejoice is a verb. It's the action of having joy. When you have joy, what do you do? You rejoice. 
So he's saying, express this joy, live this joy, share this joy, partake in this joy, invite others to have this joy. He's saying rejoice in what? Your situation? Rejoice in your bank account? Rejoice in your job? Rejoice in your possessions? He isn't saying rejoice in those things. He's saying what? Rejoice in the Lord. Many people that I know, some Christians, their joy is like a roller coaster, right? When they're doing well and when things are are happening right and their kids are behaving and their bank account looks good and the job situation's peaceful and there's no pandemic, man, their joy is super high. But the second things like begin to turn sideways, what happens to their joy? Their joy is gone. Why? Because they have a religious way of looking about their joy. Their joy is dependent on situations, not on what Jesus has already done. If there was a person who had every right to feel like there was no joy, it was Paul being locked up, tied to a Roman guard, knowing that his death was coming. For what? For preaching Christ? But yet he says, I rejoice in what? The Lord, because I know the things that I'm receiving and that I will receive, Jesus has already done them for me. This is a joy that steadies you. The Bible talks about it like an anchor for your soul. That no matter what the winds and challenges and trials of life and the storms and the issues that come, no matter how much your boat feels like it's being rocked, there's an anchor that's steadying you. There's an anchor that's grounding you down. And it's Christ and what He's done for us already. And that is something to be joyful over. Amen? So we don't rejoice in our circumstances, our situations, your current mood. Our joy is in Christ. And I love Paul because he's like a parent. How many of you repeat things to your kids? All the time, right? Paul says, look, I'm not going to get tired telling you this over and over again. Because it's going to keep your faith safe. He's telling you, how do you guard your faith? How do you protect your walk with Jesus? Rejoice in the Lord. Hey, if you're struggling, if you're battling something, if something's turned sideways in your life, how do you create this this protective layer around your faith? Rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in Him. Religion says your joy is dependent on how you are doing. It's about you, your works. Relationship says, man, I have joy, Jesus, because of what you've already done. Lifts this pressure. Lifts this need to perform. The second thing I want to share with you is that religion says, or religion thinks, be confident in my good works that I have to do. That's a very religious way of thinking. That I could take confidence in my good works that I have to do. Relationship thinks my confidence is in the work God has already done. (laughs) Paul here is going to bring something out. And I I want you to notice this language that he's using because he's not speaking nicely here. But religion says, be confident in my good works. I have to do them. I have to perform. And when I perform, I feel good before God because I'm doing the work. That's religion. Relationship is I have confidence to stand before the Lord, not because of anything that I could ever do, because of the work He's already done for me. Again, releasing the pressure 
of performing. Paul says this in chapter 2. He says, watch out for those dogs. He's not talking about canines. He's talking about people. We'll talk about that in a minute. Those people who do evil. Those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We, listen to his words here, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. It's confidence. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul is warning here of false teachers. He calls them dogs. Now listen, in the times when this was written, dogs were not seen and and treated like they were today. I mean, we we just bought a dog in December, and man, my family's like over the top with this thing, right? I mean, like, it's, it's a little disturbing sometimes. I mean, they buy them clothes. I mean, they, they hug. I mean, it's, 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 it's fine. They love the dog. And you should love your dog. And you know what? Dogs are wonderful. Are there dog people here? Any cat people here? Cats, not so much. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> Cats are wonderful too. But these animals were not seen as pets back then when this was written. Dogs were vile, ravenous creatures that roamed in packs. They ate garbage. They were diseased, Right? Uh, they were rabid, they would attack people, and a dog was seen as like one of the dirtiest animals. And, and Paul is comparing these false teachers, and he's calling them dogs. And he's not only calling them dogs, he's saying, hey, they, they, they're evil, they're acting out of their own hunger. You know, a dog will satisfy his hunger before anything. My wife and I just came back from a little outing, we were, we were away from home for about 24 hours, and as soon as we got in the house, the dog saw us, and it was like, he went crazy, Right? And then my wife went and got a bone and threw him a bone, and he forgot all about us. Yeah, okay, enough of you, the bone. Why? Because dogs want to satisfy their hunger. They're about them, right? And these teachers, these false teachers who were, who were influencing the church at Philippi were acting like dogs. They were doing things for their own benefit. They were being everything that Paul says not to be in chapter 2. And he doesn't only call them that. He says they're being evildoers. Why were they being evildoers? Well, because these people, what was it they were preaching? Were they preaching against Jesus? They weren't preaching against Jesus. These people believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but what they were preaching is that the way you are made right before Jesus is through your works, through your religion. So Paul knew that this false teaching, that the way you get made right before God is to keep working at it, to keep being good, you know, to be a good Christian and, and to, to work for it and that you earn it that way, do this ritual, do that ritual, and we'll talk about what one of those rituals are in a second, but they were preaching a message that was pulling people away from God. Why does religion by works pull people away from God? Because it creates two tensions. The first tension is it creates fear. Because if you hold to that thinking that I'm made right before God because I do the right things, it creates fear because you know you're going to mess up. So you live in this fear, man, if I mess up, that means God doesn't love me. That means I'm not forgiven. It means I'm not saved. It means God doesn't accept me. It creates fear in your heart because it's fear-driven. How many of you lived in fear of your parents? Because you knew if you messed something up, what was going to happen? Oh, yeah. 
The other thing it can create is this feeling of superiority. I do everything right, so I am good. You are bad. I am a winner. You are a loser. I am God's son. You are a bum. And it creates this two-tier system where now I have it together, I'm accepted, and I look down at you because you keep messing up. And Paul knew this is wrong. That's evil. Because it's going to pull people away from God. It's going to pull people away from Jesus. Because there's going to be people who elevate themselves, and there's going to be other people who say, well, what the heck should I even try for? I'm just going to mess up. Now he calls them mutilators. Now this is a trip because it's... No one else talks about circumcision as much as the church. Have you ever been like in a restaurant and just circumcision comes up in conversation? Does anybody do that? Yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, let's stop talking about sports. Let's talk about circumcision. No one does this. Only the church does this, right? But it's an, it's an important metaphor. It's an important idea. And what these false teachers were teaching was that to, to, to be made right with Christ, you needed to be circumcised. Now, we all know what that means. I'm not going to get into an anatomy, you know, an anatomy lesson and the whole medical thing about that. Some of the men just cringe thinking about it, and that's fine. But the act of circumcision was a command that God had gave Abraham in the Old Testament. And he said, your firstborn, your sons, your sons need to be circumcised by the eighth day because that will be a sign to me and to others that they belong to me. It was also an act of shedding blood, which expressed this idea of a covenant with God. And it was a ritual. It was a religious ritual which the people in the Old Testament had to follow. Paul is saying, look, we are no longer under that covenant. We are under a new covenant. When we celebrated communion today, you know that when Jesus held up that cup and he taught his disciples at the table, he said, this is my blood, a sign of a what? New covenant. A new and what? Everlasting covenant. This covenant is forever because it symbolizes that it's my blood that's washed you. In other words, the circumcision of your flesh, a very sensitive part of the flesh, yes, gives blood and is a sign of covenant. Jesus is saying this new covenant passes that, supersedes that. And this is now what you're under because my blood will be poured out for you. And it's that blood which makes you mine. And Paul is saying these are mutilators of the flesh. To call somebody uncircumcised was one of the biggest put-downs you could do. Do you remember David when he encountered Goliath? What did he say? He didn't say, oh, who's this bum here trying to take me on? No, he called him a name, very derogatory name. He called him what? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, he's saying, who's this outsider to God? Who is this person who doesn't know the Lord? trying to take on me. This idea of circumcision was a big deal in the church. But what Paul was saying, he says, us who worship the Lord are truly circumcised. Maybe some of the ladies are confused now, saying, wait, how does this even happen? Because I'm female. What Paul was talking about was the circumcision of the heart. You see, in the Old Testament and in the New Covenant, it talks about having your heart circumcised, that when the Spirit comes in, when, that when you receive Christ in faith, the Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And the circumcision of your heart that's done without human hands, because again, religion says, be confident in my good works. 
the circumcision that was done in the Old Testament was done by human hands. The circumcision that's done on your heart in the New Testament is done without human hands. That's why Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says, In him you are circumcised with a circumcision made what? Without hands. That means God has circumcised your heart. He's cut the part of your heart that's against Him, that's hard towards Him, that's hard towards others. It's the work that God has done in you already that should give you confidence. It's not the circumcision done with human hands. It's the circumcision done with God's hands. That's what our confidence is in. Our glory is not in what we could ever accomplish in your positions, in your works, our confidence is about the work of Jesus. So Paul says, watch out for these dogs. We don't have confidence in human effort. Now Paul starts talking about the confidence that we have in our human efforts. And this is the next thing that religion says. Religion says and religion thinks that my resume determines my worth before God. It's everything that I do for Him that makes me more valuable. It's performative. The more I work for him, the more he's going to see me good as. That's religion. Relationship says my worth is determined by my identity in God. You see the difference there. My resume determines my value to God. That's religion. Relationship says my worth is determined by my identity in God. Paul says, look, we have no confidence in human effort. If other people want to, you know, be confident of what they've done. I got them beat. So here Paul gives you his resume. So here's Paul's resume. In verse 5 he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, as God commanded Abraham to do. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. That means I'm 100% Jewish. No outside blood. I'm a pure breed. He says, I am a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember, Israel had 12 sons. Each son created its own tribe. So there was 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. The youngest son was Benjamin. And the Benjamin tribe was always seen as highly regarded. I mean, they were like the cool, you know, the cool ones. I mean, Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. Right? So he says, I'm a Benjamite. In other words, I'm from like the top tier of the nations. I was circumcised. I'm a pure blood. I'm a real Hebrew, if there was ever one. I'm a member of the Pharisees, which means, you know what? I studied the law. I'm a religious dude. It means I studied the Scriptures. I know the Old Testament. I know the law. I've memorized it. I'm part of the elite religiously who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He says, I was so zealous that I, hardly, uh, I harshly persecuted the church. He means, hey, I was not only religious in mind, but I was religious indeed. I was doing it. You remember the first martyr, Stephen, who was killed? Who sanctioned his murder? A guy named Saul, who would later on become who? Paul. She says, hey, I was not only studying it and preaching about it, I was living it. And as for righteousness... He said, I obeyed that law without fault. So hey, you want to compare resumes? My resume blows your resume out of the water. Religion would say, look at me. Look at everything I've done. But look what Paul says in verse 7. And here it is. The power of thought. 
thoughts, actions, habits, lifestyles, destiny, right? Paul says in verse 7, I once thought like that. I used to think, you know, when I was in my religious mind, I used to think those things mattered. Those things brought me worth. Those things made me feel good about myself. He said those things were valuable. I used to think that. But now, I consider them what? Worthless. They're trash. Because of what Christ has done. No one could top Paul when you compare resumes. And there's people who they'll boast about their religious education. I have this degree. I've studied this Bible. They'll boast about their positions. Hey, I'm a pastor. I'm a small group leader. I'm a bishop. I'm an apostle. I'm a prophet. Hey, I know the Pope. Whatever. They'll boast about their knowledge, right? I mean, they'll boast about things. And we think those things give us position before God like they actually carry some weight. Like they have some pull before God. But in reality, those things don't mean anything before God. What means something before God is your identity in Him. Are you His son? Are you His daughter? That's what's of infinite worth. It reminds me of when I graduated college, a counselor told me, he said, look, I advise you go to a professional writer and have them write your resume. Now this was before Google and all that stuff. I'm aging myself, I'm sorry. So I went to a professional writer and I paid this dude about 350 bucks and he says, all right, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me your degrees. Tell me your experience. What have you done? And about two weeks later, I went back to him and he presented to me my resume. And I remember reading that resume and I said, who is this dude? I think you got me confused. Because like reading this resume, I feel like Superman. <laughs> and you know what? He just took everything that I've done that was normal and inflated it, and made it sound like it was the greatest thing the earth had ever seen. I mean, he was really good at what he did. And you know what? That resume worked. I put that resume out, and people started calling me for interviews. And as they would bring up things in my resume, they would mention, oh yeah, Mr. Sanchez, you mentioned that you did this, 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 and that's true. But the words they would say, I was like, I don't even know what these words mean. We pad our resume, don't we? We, you know, okay, you, you, you let a project at work. But in your resume, you design, you implemented, you, in, you know, instituted, and you, uh, all these fancy 10-cent words that we use to pad what we really do. And religion says, God, look at me. Look at all the great things I'm doing. God, I'm doing this all for you. So you see me as more worthy, right? And God could look at a person who hasn't done anything, but who has right thought, and knows their identity, and knows the value of what Jesus has done for them, and say, well, that person gets it because that person is about this relationship, but you are about your religion. Religion is very eye-focused. What's interesting is that this dynamic, you, you only see it when it comes to divine thinking. Track with me here. It's, if, if you were to ask somebody, hey, hey, brother, hey, hey, bro, hey, sis, like, How's your relationship with God going? What is the first things they tell you? Oh, you know, I've been praying, and man, I've been studying my word, and man, I'm listening to this podcast, and man, I'm worshiping a lot, and you know, I've been fasting, and man, I've just been being silent and just listening to, they just list all these works, right? 
if you were to ask that same person, hey, bro, hey, sis, like, how's the relationship with your kids doing? They're not going to tell you, well, I've been cooking, you know, I've been folding their clothes, man, I've been washing their stuff, you know, and, man, I, I, you know, I, 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 I buy them groceries, I feed them. People don't list a bunch of stuff you do for them. Why? Because they understand that's relationship. You ask them, hey, how's it going with your kids? They're going to tell you how they spent time together, what they've been talking about lately, moments that they've shared, maybe plans that they have to go out and do something. Why? Because they understand that that's relationship. But when you ask, try it next time. Ask somebody, hey, how's your relationship with God going? See if they don't list all the works that they're doing. When they should be telling you, man, let me tell you about this quiet time I spent with God last week. Now, they tell you that, they understand relationship. If they can share with you, man, let me tell you what God has been speaking to my heart. But if it's instantly, man, I've been praying, I've been fasting, you know, I've been reading the word, and it's work, 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 work. The resume, Paul says, I used to think like that. But now I don't. It's worthless. Here's the next one. Religion says, religion thinks, I can work to get right with God. I can work to get right with God. Relationship says, because I am right with God, he's working in me. (laughs) So one way it's, I work to get right with God. The other way is, I work because I'm right with God. Paul continues this idea here of all this being worthless, and he says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value, I love that, infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We're going to talk about that word knowing. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. That's a very PG version there. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So I want you to see that there. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, becoming one with Christ. I no, longer, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through the faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Three steps that Paul talks about there. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ. The first one is knowing Christ. There's two words to, for know in the Greek. One is to know, which is a very intellectual type of knowledge, right? Like we all know Abraham Lincoln. We know that he was a senator from Illinois. We know he was the 16th president, history lesson. We know that he was involved in the Civil War. We know that he helped abolish slavery. We know that he was assassinated. Uh, We know these things. But does anybody know Abraham Lincoln? Did you know him? The different type of know, which is used here, the word know here means that you don't know about. The word here to know is the same word that they would use actually when when they would talk about a man knowing his wife intimately. And here Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying about Jesus, excuse me, I know Jesus. I know him that way. I've spent deep moments with Christ. I just don't know about him. I just don't, you know, haven't read about him or heard sermons about him or like to talk about him or wear crosses with his image on there. I know who Jesus is. And that's of infinite more value than everything else. Everything else, my accomplishments, my resumes, my works, circumcision, all of that, dung, crap. I know Jesus. 
And because I know Jesus, I've gained Jesus. And because I've gained Jesus, I am now found in Him. That means when you look for me, if you were young growing up, you'd tell your parents, hey, you want to find me? You know, look for me. I'll be in the park. So if they wanted to find you, they would go to the place where you would be, right? Paul is saying, look, you want to find me? You know where you're going to find me? I'm going to be found in Jesus. Not just around Jesus, because there's lots of people who like to be around Jesus. They like the church service. They like the worship music. That's being around the things of Jesus. There's lots, lots of people who, you know, like to support Jesus. They'll donate and they'll give their time. I like the thought of supporting Jesus. There's lots of people who will stand with Jesus. Hey, when I'm going through something, my marriage is messed up, my addiction kicks back in, when I get fired from my job, when my kids start acting crazy, hey, I'll stand with Jesus because he makes me feel better. But none of that is what Paul is talking about. To be found in Jesus means that you're with Jesus through good and through bad. There's no in and there's no out seasons. There's no more standing on the fence. When you know him that way and when you gain him, you can't help but to be found in him. In Christ. But some people, some people will rest in feeling that I could work it out. I could support Jesus. I I could like to be around Jesus. I could stand with Jesus. I don't really need to be in Jesus though. And some people will stand on that and they will think, well, this is enough to get me in. This is enough to get me in. The door will open. Christ will accept me because I'm good enough. Because I'm around him. I stand with him. I support him. These are the people that in Matthew, Jesus spoke of. And he says on the judgment day, this is Jesus speaking now. He says on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. I was around you. We cast out demons in your name. Hey, I supported you. We performed miracles. Hey, Jesus, I stood for you. But I will reply, what? Get away from me. I never knew you. It's not enough to be around Jesus. It's not enough to support Jesus. It's not enough to stand with Jesus. You need to be found in Jesus. Completely. Because what Paul is saying here is that that's what makes me righteous. You see, this, this other righteousness, like supporting him, and, and, and don't get me wrong, works is good, right? You, you work out your faith by works. If you just say, well, this means I, I have to do nothing, right? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Because earlier he just said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But what Paul is saying is, look, understand, this is not your means of getting into heaven. You can't work your way in. That's false righteousness. What's real righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus gives you through faith. That because Jesus died on a cross and bore your sin, that you are now forgiven. That's the righteousness that's given to you. You cannot work, support, stand, and be around Jesus enough to earn your righteousness. The righteousness that you have is given to you. It's a gift. It's free. You receive it because Christ died on a cross for you. That's what makes it righteous. And what Paul is saying is you can have that fake, phony, religious righteousness. I want relational righteousness by being made right through Jesus on the cross. And this is so important. Because some people say, you know what? 
this sounds like, let me get this straight, Pastor. What you're saying is, I just need to receive this righteousness. I just need to receive it through faith. Like, I don't have to work for it. Because we've been brought up in, in, a, in a tradition, in a religion that says you have to work for everything you get. And this is why we climb ladders. This is why we're constantly busting our behind, doing the rat race, right? Doing the human hamster wheel. And, and this is why ladders and all the climbing to get places and to get approval, this is why Paul says they're garbage. Because when you climb that ladder, what you really find when you get to the top is that it was leaning against the wrong building. And when you get there, you're just like, oh, this is not even what I really wanted. So what do we do? We take the ladder now and we put up against another building and we run and we run and we run and when we get to the top of that building, it's the wrong building again. And what Paul is saying, look, make your ladder lead to Jesus. And the ladder doesn't even need to be climbed. It's received by faith. It's received by faith. Now some people must say, well, I just got to receive it. It sounds cheap. It sounds too easy, doesn't it? It wasn't cheap. Jesus paid the dearest price for that. But what a gift. That's relationship when it's given to you. The minute you feel like you've got to pay for it, earn it, you're in debt. You can't, you can't buy that. You can't buy eternal life. Ain't nothing you could do. It's a gift. It's given to you through faith. Let's close this up. Paul closes this by saying, I want to know Christ. Again, know Christ intimately, closely, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. We love that. Anyone here want to experience the same resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead? Do you want that power in your life? Man, that's the power that changes you takes the dead areas of your life and brings them back to a living form. Active. It's God's move in your life. These are the things that people come to church and they testify about, right? And they preach about. And when we hear these testimonies, we jump and we scream and we yell and we shout and we cheer and we hug and we high-five and we hand-clap and we rally about these things. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want that resurrection power. I need that resurrection power. And listen, that power is available to you. People look at this power and then you see it at the person who's sharing the testimony and you say, I want that. Listen, you have it. They're plugged in. You're not. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. We love the idea of resurrection power, but Paul doesn't just talk about the power. He also talks about the pain. He says, I want to suffer with him. Now, we, don't, we don't cheer this part. Sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. What Paul was saying is I want to experience that resurrection. Paul knew that his life was coming to an end very shortly. And he knew, look, one way or another, whether I, I feel the power or whether I'm going through the pain, I know all of it is worth it. Because the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise me up to be with him forever. No religion here. Blowing up, taking that idea of religion and smashing it to tiny little pieces like you saw that ice and saying, it's relationship. It's relationship. Your thinking matters. Stop trying to earn your way to God. Receive it. Receive him. Experience the power of his resurrection 
in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Can we stand together?